to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, 1 Samuel chapter 20, and um, Elena is going to come and she's going to read for us. Let's stand together beginning at verse 24, 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean, surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind him, beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone... David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Lord, we are thankful for the privilege of your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of gathering to hear your word proclaimed. And Lord, as your messenger, uh, allow me, Lord, simply to be your vessel so that your truth, Lord, can impart to hearts, Lord, that are hungry, that are longing, Lord, to be fed by you. Would you challenge us? Would you 
mold us? Would you shape us to be like your son? Lord, would you confront us where we need to be confronted? Lord, would you um, draw us to see our sin? And Lord, would you encourage us with the hope that's only found in you? We ask now in your precious holy name, amen. Our world is full of suffering. It's full of struggles. It's uh, full of misunderstanding of what God is actually doing in our lives. It's often a continual disappointment and ongoing unhealthy confusion. But in the thick of it, somehow, some way, we're all trying to make sense of our world. For some of you, it's an ongoing sickness that consumes your time and drains you of your energy. For others, it's the hard reality day after day with difficult relationships in your family. It could be a spouse, it could be a, a child, it could even be a parent who's struggling. For many, it's the pressure of financially making it week after week after week. And that's just, just a, a short example of the things that we struggle with week after week. But all of you made it here today. You made it here having gone through a week where a lot of things were taking place. And with all that, that baggage, with all that stuff, this week has also been full of thoughts. Thoughts about the things that you're struggling with. Thoughts of fear and anxiety. Thoughts of anger and frustration. Maybe thoughts of envy and jealousy. Or even despair and hopelessness. But did you think about God this week? Did you consider Christ in the midst of what you were going through? And if you did... What did you think? Were you angry at your circumstances and blaming it on him? God, why, why are you doing this to me? Were you frustrated because it seems that he's not answering your prayers? You keep on praying, but the same thing keeps on happening? Were you discouraged over his sovereignty because of what you have to endure day by day? Those are not uncommon thoughts. In fact, those are pretty normal thoughts. Did you think about your sin? Did you think about how it grips you and how it hinders you from seeing clearly? Did you think about how it distorts your mind and causes you to have a distorted view of God and even your circumstances? And then did you think about grace? I mean, did you, did you think about grace after you thought about all those things? How God in his kindness took you from death and breathed life into you. How God through his Holy Spirit gives you strength to live your life for his glory. Did you think about the grace that because of Christ you are now clothed in his righteousness that you don't have to prove anything to him anymore to be accepted by him. Did you think about the fact 
that you are now a child of God with a guaranteed inheritance awaiting home, heaven, which is prepared for you. Did you think about all, how all those thoughts in your heart are at war with your flesh? And how your, your flesh and how the devil even wants to come in and strip away any thoughts of fighting toward grace and Christ. But friends, that is where we live. There is a battle going on in all of us and it won't stop until the Lord comes. Don't be discouraged with that. But allow that to be a reality to say, you know what, life is a battle. Life is difficult. And there are going to be seasons of struggle. And it's a battle ultimately, friends, for loyalty. On one hand, you are going to be saying, I want to be loyal to the people that I love, to my family, to my friends, to my church, to my country. But on the other hand, we want to be loyal to Jesus. And friends, there is a, there's a struggle there. There's a tension going on there. Last week, if you remember, J.D. Uh, opened the word of God for us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we're, we're called to live out the implications of the gospel. And as he put it, the gospel demands how we are to worship. The gospel demands that we are, uh, or for us to be aware of how we are influenced, in particular, it demands that we're influenced by the word. The gospel demands that we are to be discerning his will. The gospel is not simply the, the entryway into this new life with Christ. It is, but it continues to be the fuel that motivates us, that pushes us to live our lives for his glory, to worship him, to love his word, and to seek out pursuing his will. And I want to draw our attention, just as we begin today, to Romans 12, 2, where it says, and do not be conformed to this world. Because in our thinking and in our struggles and the difficulties we face, it's not uncommon for us to be influenced by this world. To be conformed to this world. Literally, that, what that means is, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And friends, there's a lot of squeezing going on right now. There's a lot of words that you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to say that. There's a lot of thoughts you might have about what's happening in society, but you're careful not to necessarily speak too loudly in a certain context because the world is pressing in on those thoughts and ideas. It wants you to abandon your love for God and to embrace your love for this world. It wants you to throw away the mind of Christ's thinking that comes from being fashioned and shaped by God's word and, and to embrace the thinking that is more tolerant, that's more exclusive, or say inclusive, and reasonable in a modern, developed, and sophisticated culture. But friends, there's nothing new about this at all. Oh, it's a new era, but the thoughts and the ideas really are not that new. And this has been the struggle since, Abraham, uh, since Adam fell in the garden. The question here is this. Will man listen to the voice of God 
or to the voice or voices of the enemies of God. Listening to God or listening to the enemy of God? Friends, this is what life ultimately gives us in our struggle, in our pursuit to honor Christ. Will we listen to him or will we listen to the other voices? And we know that behind all of those other voices is the enemy. And friends, that's, that's how it's pictured for us in the book of Genesis. It actually talks about sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is to have us, to ensnare us, to grab us. So when we encounter the pressure of the world, we're called to be loyal to the one who saved us. The one who, before the foundations of the world, chose us in Christ and showered us with countless spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now friends, I want you to hear something today. Such loyalty to the one who saved us is marked by an attitude of hatred. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, 26. Friends, this is all preparation for our text and you'll see how it unfolds and how it's impacted in our text in just a minute. But we are called to be a people who are loyal to Christ and in that loyalty, that loyalty appears to the world like hatred. We're called to hateful thinking, to hateful living, to hateful choices but all for the glory of God. And ultimately, your hatred is a test of your discipleship. Listen to what it says. If anyone, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. If anyone comes to me and does not what? Hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, in our contemporary world, if I just walk down to Castro Valley Boulevard in the middle of a, a parade, in the middle of a celebration, and said, hey, I want to read you a passage of Scripture, this would not go over well. Because you're not going to get what it's saying simply by taking it at face value. It doesn't mean that Scripture isn't to be understood simply. I think we, un- we need to understand simply what the word hate is in this passage. It seems harsh. It seems like a, a fundamentalist attitude. We're called to honor our parents, right? Scripture says that. We're called to love and respect one another in marriage. That's what Scripture says. We're called to nurture our children toward Christ. All those things are true. But Jesus here is painting a picture for us. It isn't hatred in its normal sense, but a a loyalty that prioritizes Christ above all of those relationships. So in other words, my loyalty to Christ must always be above my parents, above my spouse, above my children. I must listen to him first. I must be loyal to him first. That doesn't go over too well in certain cultures. Because family is king. But as far as the culture of Christ is concerned, he says, listen, as my child, I'm calling you to be loyal. 
to me in such a way that it appears that really you don't care about your family. But then we fashion and shape that with the other things that we learn in Scripture. If I am being loyal to Christ, that means I'm going to love my spouse. And if I'm going to be loyal to Christ, that means that my children are, are, are children that I desire to nurture and care for. It means that I'm going to honor my parents. Those are all flowing out of what Christ is instructing us to do as people who are ultimately loyal to him. Friends, this will constantly be a struggle for us. How can we both, both be loyal to Christ as well as also to our family? So as parents, we'll be loyal to what God says about discipline and the raising of our children or we'll be swept away by the thinking of the world that is in opposition to what God says. There's always a tension there in the world, isn't there? On, on both sides, on the passive side and on the abusive side, there is a way to honor Christ in how you are disciplining your children. As a spouse, the question is, will I be loyal to the instructions of Christ in his word, or will I be seduced by the thinking of the world that pumps out the, you're the king of your own world mentality, so do what feels good for you. That's not what Christ says. Or as a Christian, just more generally, will I be loyal to what God's word says on social issues like abortion and homosexuality and the poor and justice, or will I be swayed by the rhetoric of the world that says if you hold on to your Christ and his book, you are a simpleton, you're ignorant, you're bigoted, you're hateful, you're a fanatical. In fact, because of that, you have no voice in this world. Your thoughts and views are meaningless and insignificant. I don't know if any of you have heard any of the arguments that have been going on in the Supreme Court this week. And they're all empty of something, at least the ones I've heard. They're empty of, listen, the reason why we can't have this is because God says in his word, this is what marriage is. Therefore, because of that, we need to maintain Marriage as it is reflected from God's word. I'm done. How about straightforward truth? No, it's all these arguments and studies and things that have done and that the children will be hurt and all, and all those things may have implications, but listen, the reason that we want to have an appropriate view of marriage and understanding in our, in our country is because that's what God's word says. That's the authority, not studies. It's not projections, it's the truth of God's word. And that comes from loyalty to him over loyalty for family and friends and society and so on. But friends, that voice, even lifted in that context, is, all right, give me something that really actually means something because you're not allowed to bring any religious ideas into the context of what we are to do as a society. See, just little by little, our voice is being stripped away and is being ridiculed and mocked. And so friends, there is pressure from the world to think about life and to view life from their perspective and not from God's perspective. So there's this pressure, there's this tension. Friends, all that is to say this, that this is the kind of tension that we have in this text today. A tension of being conformed to what 
the leader in that culture, in this particular situation, Saul wants and desires or the willingness to honor God. Even though it's difficult, even though it may cause a break in a relationship and a harm in a relationship, we are to do it. So it's a tension of loyalty to the redemptive plan of God or the enemy of God. And Jonathan and David are bound by a covenant loyalty to one another. And in this text, that covenant is undergoing an extremely difficult test. Jonathan wants to be loyal to Saul, his king and father-in-law. And Jonathan, who is the son of the king, wants to be loyal to his father, but they are duty-bound by their covenant to be loyal to one another first. And remember... What binds this covenant is what is made um, under the witness of heaven. In other words, Jonathan and David, their covenant is first to God and then to one another. And when when people make a covenant, they're ultimately in, in the presence of God. They're doing it to God first. And then they're doing it to one another. And and there should be a weight on that covenant when it's made that way. So ultimately here, we wanna see this, and this is, this is the focal point of what we're gonna be looking at today, all right? That, that faithfulness of covenant friendship in the face of difficult decisions. This passage is screaming at us about the beauty, beauty and the wonderful um, nature of a friendship that is the result of a covenant and its faithfulness in the face of difficult circumstances. When difficult circumstances come, what happens to that friendship? What happens to that covenant relationship? What happens to that loyalty? So the activities in our text will take place over the course of three days, and so we're gonna use those as a guide or as a structure to unpack this section. Notice first of all, the first day, the plan initiated. Now what is the plan? What is the plan? In the previous section of chapter 20, uh, if you remember, David comes to Jonathan, having been chased by Saul and his army, because they are pursuing David to kill him. But David finally leaves the safety of the the camp where the prophets are, and he finds Jonathan. So he goes back into Gibeah, he finds Jonathan, his friend, his covenant friend, and ultimately what they're trying to do is they're trying to determine whether or not Saul really wants to kill David. And part of the problem here is that Jonathan apparently is unaware of what his father has been doing in trying to kill David. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 19, you will see that Saul promised to Jonathan that, hey, I'm not out to kill David at all. In fact, what I'm here to do is to maintain a relationship. He vowed, he just made a vow that he wouldn't do that. But then wars started to happen and David goes out and we all know what happens when David goes out and leads an army, right? He gets the accolades. And when that happens again, 
Saul pursues David afresh, and so we find he, he tries to kill him twice um, by throwing a spear at him. He pursues him into his home, and David escapes out the window. And then he tries to pursue him at the camp of the prophets, but God protects David by virtue of his Holy Spirit. And so David is sharing all this stuff with Jonathan, and Jonathan's having a hard time believing. He says, listen, my, my dad made a vow. And David's like, I know. But this is what's happened. And it wasn't like these two guys now are at odds with each other. Because of their covenant friendship and their covenant loyalty, they are willing to be truthful and they're willing to listen to what the other says, and Jonathan is having a hard time believing, but it's his covenant loyalty to David that turns Jonathan to believe David. And so now they're seeking to answer this question, is Saul really out to kill David? And with that, they come up with a very simple plan. With the feast beginning, with the new moon, David is gonna be purposely absent. They're gonna come up with a reason. It's not a true reason, but it's a reason why he's not there. And if Saul responds well, then we know, okay, Saul's not out to kill David. But if Saul responds in anger, they know what the situation is. Now, David should be at the feast. Why? Well, not only is it because there is a feast, but David now, because he's married into the family, should be with the family for the feast. Does that make sense? Some of you today are celebrating Mother's Day, and who do you expect to be there? Probably the family, right? Makes sense. There's a gathering. There's an expectation. David is expected to be here, even though Saul has been pursuing his life. And so we find this plan initiated. Everyone's sitting at the feasting table except for David. And as the the writer of 1 Samuel, the narrator, takes us into the mind of Saul. He lets us know what he's thinking. And here's what he's thinking. Something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he is not clean. You're like, oh, okay, wow. Now, the reality is that if you've read Leviticus, you'll understand it didn't take much to be unclean. So it's not unusual for someone to not be there at the beginning of a festival. And they have to wait a day and they have to go through certain ceremonies and so they can be clean. So, so far, so good. Saul's thinking, maybe he's unclean, but he'll be here tomorrow, all right? So now we move from today, day one, to tomorrow. This is the second day. And this is what I'm calling the proof is revealed. They initiated a plan. The plan is in process. And as this plan unfolds on the second day, What's really happening in Saul's heart now is revealed to both Jonathan and David. Verse 27, but on the second day, the day after the new moon, David, David's place was empty. And Saul's thinking to himself, okay, one day I can understand, but two days, there's something fishy going on here. So he asked the question, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Now it's clear from the statement and the conversation that Jonathan had with Saul in chapter 19 about David that Saul was very aware of Jonathan and David's friendship. I mean, he came in the beginning of chapter 19 just pleading and just arguing for David. Not only were they covenant friends, but remember, they were also family, brothers-in-law. 
So naturally Saul would ask Jonathan if he knew about David's whereabouts. And Jonathan's answer then is what comes next. Remember, this is an answer that Jonathan and David had worked out together. And Jonathan answered and said, David earnestly asked a leave of me to go to Bethlehem, and he said, let me go, for our clans hold a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So David basically was, in that statement, is asking Jonathan for permission to not be there, and he's passing it along to his father. And this is where we can say proverbially, proverbially all hell broke loose. This is where sin now just pours out of Saul. This is where we, you know, we've, we, we've seen maybe a, a holding back, but now he is just full of venom and full of poison, and it comes in stages. Now the question is, how is Saul going to respond to this tale? And remember, Saul is a mirror for us. He's a picture, a reminder of the danger of our slavery to sin. If you remember, he was a man with privilege from God, but with that privilege felt justified in stepping over God's boundaries. That's the whole incident of offering the, uh, the sacrifice when he was told to wait. Saul, just because of his privilege, felt that he had the freedom to do that. He's also one who refused to listen to the counsel of Samuel, God's prophet. And when he... Uh, as we've looked at the story, we've just seen Saul go from this place of, of being in position as king and, and, and maybe a little bit of hope, just seeing him decline and decline and decline and, and degenerate as it continues on. He's just going deeper and deeper into rebellion. So in verse 30, it says, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Now friends, this is a little turn in the story because it's not just his anger against David now, it's his anger against his own son. So one word can be used to describe Saul, and that's anger. He was an angry man. His response to his sinfulness when confronted had not been repentance, but rebellion. And the fruit of that rebellion was a heart of anger. And notice that this text doesn't say that Saul's anger was caused by Jonathan. Jonathan didn't make Saul angry. No, Saul's anger was incited by Jonathan's love and loyalty toward David, but it was Saul's sinful response to what was going on around him. Saul's anger was first with God. It was first vertical before it was ever horizontal. And the battle going on in the heart of Saul is not against men, but against God who had rejected him and is carrying out his redemptive plan. Saul is sinfully obsessed with anyone who is standing in the way of his plan. And just think about the story. Remember, the people chose Saul, right? And we know that God ultimately said, okay, I'll let you go with Saul. But it was the people's king. And so he took position of that kingship. But because of his sinfulness, God rejected him as king and said, you know what, I am going to raise up one of your neighbors. And he ultimately is going to be the king. But Saul is not willing to even accept that as true. He's now fighting against 
God. He is doing what he can to thwart God's purposes. And we'll see that again in this passage as we go on. So Saul in anger says to Jonathan, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Don't ever say that. (laughs) The irony of this is what he should have said is this, you son of a rebellious and perverse man. That would have been accurate. Saul continues, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Now here's all the guilt trip and laying it on thick stuff that's going on. Saul is angry at Jonathan's loyalty for David and against his own family. He's saying, Jonathan, you have brought shame to your family name. You have brought disgrace to your family line. You have been disloyal to me and in your loyalty to David, you have dis- dishonored even your mother. Those are pretty weighty words for a son to hear from a dad. A dad, by the way, whom he thought and whom he believed initially had given him a promise that he was not going to hurt his friend. And so when he concocts this plan with David to find out his father's attitude Jonathan is sitting here and he is stunned by what he's hearing. He's believed David, but he's still, he's hoping, I think, that his father is actually going to be responding in a consistent way with his words. So don't forget, not only is you know, Saul angry with his son, but Jonathan's thinking to himself, well, Dad, you said over here. You broke a vow. And we read something very revealing from Saul, verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring to him me, or bring him to me, for he shall surely die. This is clear indication, friends, that Saul at this point in time knew that David was God's anointed. He knows who his enemy is. And he is not gonna do anything to support his enemy. He's gonna do everything he can to kill his enemy. You see, it's all about your kingdom. By, by Saul saying to Jonathan, your kingdom, he's thinking about his family line. Jonathan, you're next. And with David still alive, your kingdom will not happen. So in order to survive, we've got to build up my kingdom and we've got to kill off David. Friends, this, this is true for anyone who is fighting against God. When people interfere or get in the way of us building our kingdom, we see them in our anger because they're interfering with what we want. So because you are angry at God, think about this. The people whom you have blamed for your anger have never been the cause for your anger. And please get this. 
When you are angry at God and then you get angry at people, you're, you're, they're not making you angry. They're not causing your anger. You are choosing to be angry with them. You are choosing to be angry with your circumstances. But in our culture, we say, you made me angry. Cut me off. Cut in line. You shortchanged me. You said these words to me. You made me angry. No one made you angry. You chose to respond to that offense by being angry. And those who are mature in Christ, those who want to honor God will take ownership of that. And if they don't and they justify their anger, they are justifying their sin. No one makes you angry. People can provoke. In fact, as parents, we're cautioned not to provoke our children to what? Anger. But even our children need to know, even though mom and dad sometimes provoke you, guess what? That doesn't justify your anger. You still need to deal with it as sin. Yes, I was wrong, I provoked you, but guess what? You still need to confess your sin of how you responded, even to my provoking. We are both sinful. Have I not just described the family? See, they're only the occasion for your anger. The words and the behavior, the the presence um, sometimes incites something in us that just stirs up anger. Things that maybe we've had hidden away, but we see this person we haven't seen for years, and all of a sudden this anger comes from nowhere and just rises up. Now, that happens in our heart, and sometimes no one else sees it. But it's there. We've got to learn to take the gospel and to have its implications now do their work in our heart, right? To worship God in that situation, to allow the word of God to influence us in that situation and to pursue doing his will in that situation. So there's the reality that these thoughts, these ideas start to to well up in our heart, but we beat them down with the grace of God's word and the gospel that that is living in us. It's practically living out the gospel. So no one made you angry. You're angry in a sinful way because your heart made a choice to listen to those words or to Uh, experience that person's behavior or to be reminded of their presence. Here's the bottom line. We must be willing. Oh, I didn't see those. We're not there. We must be willing to own our anger rather than excuse it or justify it because of what others have done. Actually, that comes up a little later, so hold on to that thought. Now, if there's anyone in history that had reason to get angry, it was Christ. He was arrested unjustly. He was put on trial unjustly. His sentence was delivered unjustly. See where this is going? He was beaten by the guards unjustly. He was whipped with a cat of nine tails unjustly. He was mocked and scorned unjustly. And he was put to public shame unjustly. He was crucified unjustly. That's a little bigger than they forgot to put the fries with your McDonald's burger. 
Now, I don't mean to be facetious here, but the things that we go up in arms about oftentimes are so insignificant. What happened to Christ was unjust. All of it was. Yet, he kept his mouth under control. And he did not spew out angry words to those who were his accusers or those who were his enemies. Instead, he endured the cross and with his mouth, he prayed and he proclaimed, forgive them for they know not what they do. My friends, anger and circumstances can rise up, but God has equipped us with the ability to fight away a sinful response to man and to circumstances that face us. Now Saul, his words are words of poison and venom because of the things that have happened to him and he's not willing to take responsibility for his sinfulness. He's not willing to repent. He's not willing to own that his anger is because he's fighting against God. In fact, he is entrenched in it. So Saul's words, get this, therefore send and bring him, that's David, to me, for he shall surely die. Saul's words there to Jonathan are actually a direct command from Saul, the king, to Jonathan, his son, to find David so that Saul can kill him. This wasn't just kind of like some general words. Saul is saying, I'm commanding you to find David and to kill him. Jonathan, where is your loyalty going to be? Is it going to be to me? Is it going to be to our family? Our kingdom? Or is it going to be to David? Saul is so obsessed, controlled, and enslaved to sin that what his son, or when his son questions him now, his anger explodes against him again. Look at verse 32. And Jonathan answered his father, or Saul his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Go back to the beginning of chapter 20. Look at verse one. Here's David coming to Jonathan. He said before Jonathan, this is David speaking, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Jonathan is just repeating the same words to his father. What has he done? What is he guilty of? Why should he be put to death? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew, it's an understatement, that his father was determined to put David to death. See, that's the answer to the question. This was what they were trying to find out. Saul's anger revealed through his raging words and behavior is the evidence that convinces Jonathan that his father was determined to put David to death, just like David had said. Listening to his loyal friend has proven to be justified. David wasn't lying to him. David was giving him the accurate assessment of what was going on. And friends, this is what covenant friendship does. It tells the truth and believes even those hard words, even when the evidence seems contrary. 
The words of covenant friendship are trustworthy. They're trustworthy. Husbands, wives, covenant friends, words should be trustworthy. When one spouse says one thing to another spouse, that spouse expects those words to be true, to be relied upon. That's what covenant friendship is about. Sadly, for a moment, Jonathan is now like David, a spear-dodging enemy of the king of Israel. But now notice Jonathan's anger. All of this was so overwhelming for Jonathan. Just, I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. This was, this was a huge turning point for him. I'm sure he, he knew that there was an issue with his dad. All along the way, we see Jonathan kind of like, oh, there goes dad again. Uh, come on, dad, you know, be smart. And he's, remember, he's rallying the troops and he's doing different things to win the day. And, but now, this is, this is his father turning against him because of his loyalty to David. He is justifiably angry with his father. He is understandably grieved for David. Verse 34, and Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. The example of Saul teaches us that sin is not something to be trifled with. It's damaging to our souls, friends, every time we question his will, every time we doubt his word, every time we step over his boundaries, every time we bring God into the court of our judgment and find him guilty. Sadly, there are many people who are angry at God, and on the surface they may have the appearance of normalcy, but underneath they are burning with questions and accusations about the wisdom and the love of God, his goodness and his choices for them. Paul Tripp summarizes this well. If you believe in the sovereignty of God and you question your circumstances, um, your struggle is not with your circumstances, your struggle is with God. Let me say it again. If you believe in the sovereignty of God and you question your circumstances, your struggle is not with your circumstances, your struggle is with God. God. So in order to begin to to get victory over those horizontal struggles with people and circumstances, you must confess your struggles are really vertical. In every situation, relational, circumstantial, God is always speaking his will and his truth and wanting you to follow him. Now, you may not understand why all this is happening. But in his sovereignty, he has a purpose. We have to fight to place ourselves under that purpose first and to be loyal to understand that first. And then our ability to see the world becomes clearer. So some areas that we tend to question the purposes of God in our relationships where there's always difficulties and strains, in the dreams that you and I have had for life that have not necessarily been realized. You know, just you grow up with the, the, the Disney mentality of follow your heart and follow your dreams and follow this and princesses and happiness ever after and 
your world is dashed because that reality isn't being realized. And your finances always seem to be squeezed. Just always, there's, there's always a bill waiting for you in that mailbox. And some days you don't even want to go out there. You think, you know what, if I just don't go to the mail, I don't have to worry about it. Let me remind you, you do, okay? <laughs> just in case you're wondering. Sometimes your struggle is because of your location. Maybe it's the house you're in. Maybe it's the neighborhood you're in. Maybe it's the town you're in. Maybe it's the state that you're in. Maybe it's the country you're in. These are all areas that we can struggle vertically and say, God, why have you put me here? But the thing is, he has. And you have to seek to understand why and accept it, and then live for his glory in that context. So in essence, what you're saying in your heart is, either my will be done, or God, your kingdom come. And that's where we land on this last statement. Anger with God will always result in anger with others and your circumstances. If you're angry with God, then you're gonna be angry with people. If you're angry with God, you're not gonna like your circumstances. You're gonna be blaming him for all the struggles you have with people and all the struggles you have with circumstances. The, the issue now is fighting your way through the gospel, through the word of God, and your understanding of who he is in his character to see the beauty of God sitting on his throne who is saying, listen, I have just put you here for a breath. This life is just a vapor, and through you, I am accomplishing my redemptive plan. Yes, the redemptive plan ended up at Christ, but it continues on being fleshed out because of Christ now until the Lord comes again on this earth. God is still at work in his people accomplishing his purposes. And he does that in just a myriad of ways through all of us, through ugliness, through perfection. He's at work. Day three. Just imagine, here's uh, Jonathan having heard all these words from his father, having had to dodge a spear, having the reality of, of, of what David's saying being realized as true. His father's broken vow. And Jonathan leaves the table seemingly goes to his room and goes to bed without eating. He's not punished. But friends, sometimes when you are grieving, you just don't want to eat. And his grief was for his friend. His grief was for his situation. But sometimes sleeping on your anger and grief is a helpful way to clear your mind and begin the new day with a refreshed vigor. Look at Psalm 4.4 for that. So with the reproof of Saul's intentions revealed, Jonathan needs to honor his covenant friendship and loyalty by following through with what David and he had stated was the plan. He needs to now seek out David according to the plan that they had established. And verses 35 through 40 kind of relate to us this plan. And the plan is Jonathan's gonna go out and he's going to basically pretend like he's practicing his archery, he's having a little boy there, and if I shoot the arrow farther and I tell the boy I'm, you know, isn't, didn't I shoot it farther then you're going to know here's the answer and so by virtue of Jonathan's actions and his voice 
David knows what the answer is to the test. There is a predicament now that is clearly understood. The signal that Jonathan gives David indicates that David has been right all along and that Saul is seeking to kill him. This is not good news, but it is the truth. And Jonathan, because he is a covenant friend, and covenant friends face truth together. He carries the burden of truth to his friend. And it's with that backdrop that we come to the next verses. And many have described these next verses as some of the most beautiful descriptions of covenant friendship anywhere. It's marked by David's gratitude, by mutual affection and grief. So we're gonna call it, beginning here, covenant grief. Look at verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Here we have mutual submission. Notice David. He he comes and immediately what does he do? He falls on the ground and he bows three times before Jonathan. Although David knows that he is the anointed king, he still recognizes that that has not been established yet and so he willfully humbles himself before Jonathan and honors him as an issue of respect. Here's this news, here's this reality. The father of Jonathan is out to kill David and David now, because of his covenant friendship, comes and bows before Jonathan. He's not only a friend, but he's still one who respects him and respects his position. Jonathan has already demonstrated his submission to David in protecting him. He recognizes already that he is the future king of Israel. And it's it's a reminder that covenant friendship transcends position. It's a reminder of how we relate to another in the church, whether Jew or Gentile, the Bible says, or slave or free or rich or poor, or in our context, whether white collar or blue or famous or infamous the friendships that we have in the context of the church or because we are part of Christ's body is is a friendship of mutual submission. And that's why in the context of this church, you know, you might have a, you might have a guy who's in the church who is a, you know, a, a president or a vice president in some kind of a company who's meeting for breakfast with a guy who is working on the lines at a factory and there is a mutual friendship going on there that transcends position because that's just a place of work. But in Christ, we are united. In Christ, we are one. In Christ, this covenant loyalty is consistent, is beautiful. And that can also be a picture of two women in a context too. So there's mutual submission. There's also, secondly, a mutual affection, a mutual Affection, mutual submission turns to mutual affection. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And the expression here, one another, by the way, is translated that way in the English because it's really hard to translate the Hebrew um, maybe in a, in a clear sense because it's, it's a Hebrew expression and it literally means, um, the idea of one another means a friend or a neighbor. So the idea here is that Jonathan and David are kissing each other like they are friends and neighbors. Now friends, we we must study God's word and make sure that we 
our understanding in the context of its culture. Now remember, what Samuel told Saul was that he was going to raise up another king who's gonna be one of your neighbors. And so it's interesting here in the Hebrew how this is a play and how things kind of draw together. Now, I've been to France before and people like to kiss there. You guys know what I'm talking about? All right? If you have a big nose, it's hard, okay? But it's one of those things when you greet people, it just becomes a habit. You just go up to people and, you know, you kiss on one side. And it's, it's kind of like one of those fake kisses, right? I mean, it's kind of like that, right, on the other side. But they just, they get into the habit of doing that. It's natural. It's cultural. If this is a friend, even if it's someone that you've met for the first time, it's not like you're walking down the street, you know, you're, you're in you know, downtown Paris and everyone you meet, you're, you're kissing. That's not the point. But, I mean, this is, a, this is a friend, this is an acquaintance, this is someone you're meeting. This is how you greet one another. And people don't think anything beyond, hey, this is a greeting. All right, in our context, it's like, whoa, uh, you know, space, all right? We like our space. And our space is pretty big, okay? Um, I've been to other contexts, um, and I've heard of other contexts, too, where, um, in particular, guys kiss other guys right on the lips. Well, I know some of my, my Russian friends in some areas and contexts, that's just natural. At the end of a, a men's gathering, fire, fireside gathering, Bible study, we're done, and they're kissing each other on the lips as they leave. And we're just like, you know, I know you guys think, well, that'd be something we start in men's group or something like that. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so, right? I mean, so from our culture, this idea of kissing one another seems strange, okay? And that's why there's a lot of kind of cultural baggage now that's thrown on this. But in that culture, this, this kiss was a, an expression of respect, of love, of friendship, of camaraderie. In fact, we find it when Samuel anointed David, he kissed him. Now, if you're a dad and you have kids, what do you do? You kiss them. If you're a dad and you have kids that are boys and they're teenagers, what do you do? You kiss them. I'm going to do this. All right, my son comes up to me, gives me his forehead, you know. We kiss him. Why? Because we want to show him we love him, all right? So there's something perfectly, rightfully appropriate that's going on here that we must recognize and see in its own culture. But I want to draw your attention to Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, when the psalmist is writing, why do the nations rage? Why do they gather together against the Lord's anointed? They're told in verse 10, now therefore, this is what they need to be doing. O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a calling here for the nations who are opposed to Christ to come before him, to bow before him, and to kiss him. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? See, friends, this is a, it's a mark of respect. It's a mark of honor. So it is here. There was genuine affection and respect between these two men. And it's clear that the news of Saul's murderous intentions places their friendship in jeopardy. 
But notice now covenant, not just covenant grief, but covenant peace. This is so beautiful. There is grief and weeping, but Jonathan wrestles this grief toward peace. Jonathan is here being very theological. Verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, all this is happening, they're just, they're leaning on each other, they're weeping, they're kissing, and Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. Go in peace? You know, David, yeah, go in peace and my dad's gonna keep chasing after you trying to kill you. No, there's, there's a different purpose here, there's a different kind of peace that Jonathan is talking about. Let's continue reading. It says, he says that the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he, he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So like I said, at first this seems so unusual but it's, it's because we need to understand the kind of peace that is being talked about here by Jonathan. It's not a peace that is absent of difficulty, trial, or trouble, but a peace that is built out of their covenant friendship and loyalty. He's saying, David, now that we know the truth, as difficult as the truth may be, we can be at peace because of our covenant loyalty. That's why he says, the Lord shall be between me and you. See, it's ultimately a peace that comes because of this covenant loyalty that has been made in the presence of and witnessed by heaven. This covenant produced peace. It comes from this covenant. So when the two friends leave, Jonathan goes back to the palace, back to his sinfully enslaved father and David goes, well, we're not sure, but we find out he's in a place called Nob in the next chapter. And friends, the peace that we see in this passage is a wonderful picture of biblical peace. As Dale Davis rightly says, biblical peace is not often a general tranquility, but rather a rightness at the center in the midst of much turmoil. Biblical peace is a rightness at the center in the midst of much turmoil. So it doesn't matter what the difficulty is. Trial, disease, struggle, the center is being in the place where I've placed myself under a sovereign God and I have understanding that he is at work even though there's chaos going on. The Christian therefore does not have peace because things are peaceful. Rather, he has peace because of a covenant with a friend who is greater than Jonathan, who has sealed that covenant with his blood. It is this covenant bond that speaks peace into our struggles, into our disappointments, into our trials. Friends, just some concluding thoughts here. Let's bring all this together. Saul, first of all, is a picture of man enslaved to sin, and in particular, the sin of anger. He shows us what happens when you will not let that sin go. He wouldn't let go of his crown. He wouldn't let go of his sin. He wouldn't let go of his anger. He wouldn't let go of his enemies. However, unlike Saul, Jesus let go of his privilege in heaven to humble himself and dwell among us, to suffer, 
to face injustice and die for our forgiveness and redemption. Why is it that man is typically only willing to be elevated for the glory of God and not humiliated for the glory of God? Because we think humiliation is always something that violates God's will. Why? Because it's intertwined with our pride. It's intertwined with our purposes. Secondly, there's David. David is a picture of man suffering under unjust mistreatment. With all the spear dodging, window climbing, refuge running, still David refused to utter threats or seek to harm Saul. He's a man of courage who is aware of God's ongoing purposes. He is a man of faith and courage while fighting against bears and lions. He was protecting those sheep that were part of his family. He is also a man of faith and courage while slaying Goliath with a sling. He's a man of courage who is willing even in these circumstances to return to Gibeah and to talk with Jonathan and to place his life in danger once again. But unlike Saul, David's response was first vertical before it was horizontal. He is one who believes greatly in the Lord. He is confident in God. Is that not what he said when he faced Goliath? If God can use me to, to, to deliver these sheep from these enemies, the bear, God certainly can deliver Goliath into my hands. He understood, he had this perspective of God in the midst of the situation. And that's the kind of thinking that allows David to act and to think clearly, even in the face of mistreatment. How do you behave when you're mistreated? What do you do when you are wronged? Where does your heart go at first? And how do you battle where it goes? But like David, Jesus, having been thoroughly mistreated, the Bible says he committed himself justly to the will of the Father. He humbled himself to the will of the Father and hanging on that tree. And then we have Jonathan. What a great character he is. A picture of covenant loyalty. When Jonathan is convinced his friend is in danger, he is quick to step forward, is he not? He's there to protect David, to counsel, to cover, to encourage, to love. In chapter 19, Jonathan steps forward to secure his father's promise that no harm would come to David. In hearing David's hard to believe reports, Jonathan steps forward with David to initiate this plan to discern what's going on with his father. You see, that's what covenant friends are like. They stick with us through thick and thin. They are loyal even when all around them things have turned against them. But Jesus is greater than Jonathan, and hear this. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is the friend who is always there, standing up for us, counseling us, guiding us, protecting us. And he's the only friend who will never leave you nor forsake you. See, there's a faithfulness of covenant friendship even in difficult circumstances. And that first covenant friendship is the one that we have with Christ. 
He is loyal to us. And he never fails in his loyalty to us. So in this passage, we walk away in awe of the greatness of God and in particular Christ, but also recognizing our need to take ownership of ways that we have interfered with that covenant relationship. God is always willing to restore us back to that place because we are his friends. Lord, thank you today. So often, Lord, we are bombarded with things this world has thrown our way. And our hearts are torn asunder by words, poison, and venom from people, and choices that people make, and things that are completely out of our control. Lord, we need so much to fight against looking at you and blaming you. Help us, Lord, to see that you are not only a sovereign God, but you are a great and good sovereign God who is wise, who loves his children, who is committed completely to be loyal to his children no matter what. And he wants us to come to bow, but to lean on his neck and to weep be restored, to be comforted, to be encouraged, to live our lives, even though it's difficult, in a way that would honor and glorify you. Lord, we only have strength because you give it to us. Help us now, Lord, to live in light of the gospel and out of the gospel for your glory. Amen. Amen.